So we continue with our sermon series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Read, listen, take to heart. And today we come to Revelation chapter 7. And if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn to that chapter. In order to understand the chapter, we probably just need to remind ourselves of whereabouts we are in the book. Remember that in Revelation chapter 4, John has a vision of God, the Almighty, the Creator, the Sustainer of the universe, seated on a throne that is personal, powerful, pure, perfect, and permanent. In chapter 5, the camera zooms in on the right hand of God, in which is a scroll, God's plan of redemptive history, sealed with seven seals. And John sees the Lion of Judah, who turns out to be the Lamb who was slain, standing at the center of the throne because he too is Lord and God. He alone is worthy to open the scroll, not because of his status as God, but because of what he has done. Jesus' death on the cross is at the very center of all of human history and therefore unlocks all of human history. And then last week in chapter 6, we read how the Lamb begins to open the six seals. And we see God's plan of redemptive history. And we see that God has ordained three things for the last days. That entire period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. There is the spread of human evil and its suffering, symbolized by four horses or four horsemen, uh, on these varied colored horses. There's the persecution of the church, pictured by the souls of the martyrs under the altar, crying out to God for vindication. And then there is the end of the world and the day of judgment, pictured as this great earthquake with signs in the heavens and the stars falling from the sky. So we turn now to chapter 7, And we expect to read about the opening of the seventh seal, but it doesn't come. We'll only read about that at the beginning of chapter 8. Chapter 7 forms an important pause between the seals. You'll remember that chapter 6 ends with a question asked by those who flee from the wrath of God and the Lamb. They say, the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And chapter 7 answers that question, who can stand? Not, Not just on the great day of wrath, but all through the judgments that precede it. Who can stand? Let's have a look at the answer that is given. Revelation chapter 7 from verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. 
from the tribe of Asher, 12,000, from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000, from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000, from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000, from the tribe of Levi, 12,000, from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000, from the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000, from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is God's word. So when we read the book of Revelation, it's important to remember that besides being a prophet and a seer, John is a pastor with a pastor's heart for his people. At present, he's separated from his congregation, exiled on the island of Patmos, but he's still deeply concerned for the welfare of his people. These believers are a despised and persecuted minority within an empire that is as powerful as it is corrupt. They don't look like very much on the outside. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 4, they've become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. John knows that in the months and the years that lie ahead, they're going to face the most horrendous persecution. And so in this chapter, John records two important symbolic pictures that he has been given by Jesus for them to remind them and us of who we really are. We may be belittled and despised by the world, but that's not the real picture of who we are. And these pictures are intended to reassure us and encourage us to put courage into us so that we can go out into the world with quiet minds and strong hearts ready to love and serve the Lord. 
So we'll do what we've done in most of our sermons. We'll spend some time looking at the detail of the vision before stepping back and briefly considering three of its themes and how they affect us. John begins this chapter by saying, after this, which is really just a term that means next. And in the book of Revelation, what John sees next is not what necessarily what happens next. What John sees next is not necessarily what happens next. Revelation doesn't describe a linear sequence of events. It's more like a movie where you get flashbacks and flash-forwards and zooming in and zooming out and various camera angles. And Revelation chapter 7 is a very good example of that. Remember, chapter 6 ended with a description of the end of the world. So chapter 7 must be describing something that happens before the end of the world. Chapter 6 describes the harming of the earth through war and famine and plague. But what is described in chapter 7 takes place before the earth is harmed. In verse 3, these four angels who've been given power to harm the earth, in that sense they're equivalent to the four horsemen, are told, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So chapter 7 then is a flashback and it's carefully crafted to produce a very dramatic effect. We've been reading about all of these awful things that will come on the earth, and then John pauses and he says, well, hold on, let me go back and tell you something very important that takes place before those events happen. Chapter 7 then takes us back in time, but it also takes us forward in time. At first glance, this chapter seems to be describing two different groups of people. In verses 1 to 8, we read about a group from the 12 tribes of Israel with an exact number, 144,000. And then in verses 9 to 17, we read about a huge multitude from every nation, tribe, and people and language that no one can count. But when we look more closely, we see that this is the same group of people described from two different perspectives. We know that because both groups are identified as God's servants in verse 3 and in verse 15, but also because of the fact that this chapter follows a pattern that we see several times in the book, and that is that there is a contrast between what John hears and what John sees. Do you remember back in chapter 5, John hears a voice saying, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, but John sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. It's a very clever way of showing two truths about the person of Jesus, that he is both the lion and the lamb. Here in verse 4, John hears the number of those who are sealed, but in verse 9, John sees a great multitude that no one can count. It's a way of showing two truths about the people of God. And so let's have a look at the people of God from these two different perspectives. First, John sees the people of God as a mighty army, the church militant on earth. The imagery comes to us from the military census in the book of Numbers. And John tells us something about this group's identity, their number, and their ownership and security. 
Number one, their identity. I said that this group is the church on earth, but that may not seem immediately obvious. Isn't this a picture of the Jewish nation, or at the very least, Jewish Christians? Well, it would seem very strange if only Jewish Christians receive the seal of God, while Gentile Christians have to get through the harming of the earth without God's seal. Remember also that at the time of writing, the 12 tribes of Israel no longer existed. Ten of the tribes had been lost in Assyria 800 years previously, and the remaining two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, had got pretty mixed up during the 70 years in Babylon. And then John lists the tribes in a very unique way. Judah is listed first instead of Reuben, the firstborn. Joseph is listed as a tribe instead of Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And the tribe of Dan is left out altogether. So that the vision implies this is Israel, but also it's not. It's the new people of God, including both Old and New Testament believers, all those who have been incorporated into this new Israel, this new people of God. Number two, we see their number, 144,000. So are only a limited number of believers going to be sealed? Well, remember that the numbers in the book of Revelation are symbols. As Michael Wilcox points out in his commentary, this is a suspiciously tidy sort of number that is much more likely to be a symbol than a statistic. What does the symbolism mean? Well, it's a perfect number, isn't it? 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. I have to be so careful here because my 17-year-old daughter is taking AP maths and knows far more about maths than I have ever or will ever know. The, The number 12 is a loaded symbol, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. It's multiplied by 10 three times over, 3 and 10 also being loaded symbols. So 144,000 is a Hebrew way of saying a complete number, a perfect number. Every one of God's servants are sealed. No one is missing or overlooked. And 144,000 is also a Hebrew way of saying a really big number. Remember Peter coming to Jesus saying, shall I forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus multiplies it by 10 and says, no, 70 times. Multiplying 144 by 10 meant a really big number. Multiplying it by 10 again meant a really big number. And multiplying it a third time by 10 meant a really, really big number. A number you can't actually count which fits very well with the picture of the same group as a multitude that no one can count. The identity of the group, their number. Number three, this group's owner and their security. That's the symbolism of the seal. In Revelation chapter 14, we're actually introduced to the same group again, and we're given a few more details. John says, I looked And there before me was the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 
In John's day, slaves were sometimes branded on their foreheads to show that they belonged to someone. Well, those of you who've got grandchildren, think of the movie Toy Story and the fact that Woody has his owner's name, Andy, written underneath his shoe. You and I have God's name written on our foreheads. Is that a literal mark? No, which has some important implications for when we get to the infamous mark of the beast, by the way, but we'll get there. Christians don't literally have the name of God and Jesus written on their foreheads, but his seal of ownership is on us and within us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. To have the name of God on our foreheads means to have the character of the living God written into our minds and our hearts. Because it's on our foreheads, it means that hopefully people can see Christ in us. They may still see our brokenness, but hopefully his love and his goodness and his holiness also shine through. And the seal of God also implies his protection. The symbolism comes to us from two Old Testament passages. Uh, Firstly, Exodus chapter 12, the Passover, where the blood of a lamb marks the, the home so that the angel of death doesn't kill the firstborn son that is inside. And then Ezekiel chapter 9. In that chapter, God declares his judgment on the nation of Israel because they've turned away from him to detestable idols and practices. And God's judgment is pictured as six men, each with a deadly weapon in their hand. But before these six executioners are sent out throughout the land to kill God's people, Ezekiel sees a man clothed in linen who is told, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. These people have God's mark on them, and so they are spared the wrath of God that comes through these six executioners. And in the same way, before any of the evil and the suffering and the judgment that are described in this book come on the earth, before the beast arrives with his mark, you and I are marked with Christ's seal, his mark, and we are safe. Does this mean that we escape the terrible things that come on earth? No. Last week we saw how God's church is persecuted up until the very end. And in a moment we will see that the church is the whole company of those who come through the great tribulation. We're not spared, but we're ultimately safe. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said to his disciples, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. And having God's seal on us means that while our bodies may be beaten and battered and bruised and even killed, our souls are saved. As Jesus says in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Well, that leads us to the second perspective on the people of God in verses 9 to 17. The church triumphant in heaven. And again, John tells us about their identity, their dimensions, and their destiny. Number one, their identity. In verse 13, one of the elders tells John that this great multitude are characterized by two things. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They've done these two things, which means that both of these things have happened to all of them. This isn't a select group within the church. This is a vision of all the people of God. Firstly, they've come out of the great tribulation, which, like the last days, covers the entire period from Christ's first coming to his second coming. It's right now. The word that is used here for tribulation is that Greek word thlipsis, which we looked at in a previous sermon. And John uses that word on the very first page in chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation, thlipsis, and kingdom, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. In other words, John considered himself to be in the tribulation right then, back in 95 AD. In the same way, Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. Tribulation, thlipsis, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So this is not a message about what might happen in the future. It's a message about what is happening now, has always happened, and will continue to happen until the end. The tribulation started that very first Christmas as King Herod slaughters all the babies of Bethlehem, Satan's attempt to stop Jesus' mission before it begins. John was part of the tribulation of his own day, watching as men and women were thrown to the lions and burned alive for refusing to say, Caesar is Lord. And we have brothers and sisters in North Korea and Afghanistan and Somalia and Libya and Pakistan and 45 other countries who are fired from their jobs, expelled from their families, imprisoned and tortured and killed for their faith. The tribulation is now. Will it get worse towards the end? Most definitely. We've read about the seven seals that bring harm to a fourth of the earth. Next, we'll read of the blowing of seven trumpets that bring destruction to a third of the earth. And finally, we'll read about seven bowls that are poured out and that bring destruction on the entire earth. It's the same events described with ever-increasing intensity towards the end. To be a Christian means to live in the great tribulation and to experience thlipsis, crushing pressure. The pressure that comes when the kingdom of God crashes up against the kingdom of this world that is in rebellion to him. And true discipleship then involves death. Death to the world, death to ourself, and sometimes physical death too. But secondly, this group are identified as those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. 
Some of you uh, might be attending Christmas parties at the moment, and some of those parties may have a dress code. You have to wear a suit or an evening dress or a funny hat or a costume. Uh, Perhaps the restaurant won't allow you in without a tie. In a similar way, you and I need to be dressed in a particular way and in particular garments to be acceptable to God. But there's a problem. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. We don't have the clothes. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that all our righteous acts, not our bad deeds, but our good deeds, the very things we rely on to make ourselves look good to God, are like so much filthy, stinking, soiled clothing, the kind that you might find abandoned along the canal. We can't dress ourselves in our own righteousness. Why not? Because Jesus has died for us. He lived a perfect life. He died the death I should have died. He took my sin on that cross. And then in return, he offers me his perfect life. His is the greatest gift. For me to try and add anything to that would be the greatest insult. He clothes me in his righteousness, in these white garments. But notice how it's phrased. We're to wash our robes and make them white in his blood. In other words, it implies our active involvement. I have to accept what he has done for me on the cross. I have to identify with him. I have to choose to be linked to him in his death and resurrection. Let me just make sure this morning, have you done that? God comes to us through the prophet Isaiah and says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. It's a free gift and offer for us today. Number two, John tells us of the dimensions of this great multitude. In verse 9, this multitude that no one can count comes from every nation, tribe, people, and language. This is none other than the fulfillment of God's original promise to Abraham when his plan to create for himself a special people was first revealed. Genesis 12, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And now we see this coming to fruition. And here then, there can be no racism, prejudice, discrimination, inferiority. Anyone and everyone can freely come. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Number three, John tells us about the destination of this crowd. We won't spend too much time on this because we'll come to these events later in the book. But the eternal life that you and I will one day experience is described in two different ways. Firstly, it's described positively. What will be there? Verse 15, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Finally, we will see Jesus face to face. There'll be none of that ambiguity, none of that misunderstanding. What we've longed for and what we've experienced in part, we will experience fully. 
And secondly, our destination is described negatively. What won't be there? Verses 16 and 17. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. and He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's a wonderful image. The Lamb becomes our shepherd. But probably the most poignant words in this description are the words, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This current world really is a valley of tears. Tears of anger and frustration. Tears of bitter disappointment. Tears of hopelessness. Tears of crushing sadness. Tears of mourning. Tears of regret. Tears of pain. Tears of exhaustion. Tears of loss. In Psalm 56, we read that at present, God keeps all our tears in a bottle and sees them, but one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. As we'll read more fully later on, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So hopefully we found some encouragement even through looking at the details in these verses. We haven't been able to look at everything. But as we close, let me briefly point out three main themes in this passage that I think are important for our day-to-day lives. Firstly, suffering. Again, I keep on coming back to this theme because I think it's, it's really important. In the parable of the sower, Jesus speaks about the seed that falls on rocky ground And the fact that it refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. If no one's told you that being a Christian is difficult, that you'll have to struggle against the world, against your own flesh, against the devil, then they haven't been marketing it correctly. If we don't understand the inevitability of suffering, then when it comes, we may fall away. Or at the very least, when suffering comes, we suffer twice over. Not only do we have the pain of the suffering itself, but we have the pain of bewilderment. People sometimes say, why is this happening to me? I'm such a good Christian. I'm such a good person. I've done nothing to deserve this. Listen, the most perfect person who ever lived The Lord Jesus himself experienced the worst suffering that anyone has ever experienced. So why should we think that we would be exempt? He warned us, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Suffering, but secondly, security. The seal of God on our lives right now and the destination towards which we are headed means that you and I are utterly safe in God's world and ultimately safe for eternity. 
I've quoted this piece from the Anglican Digest a number of times, but it bears repeating. The writer says, We live as those who are on a journey home. A home we know that will have the lights on and the door open and our Father waiting for us when we arrive. That means in all our adversity, our worship of God is joyful, our life is hopeful, our future is secure. There is nothing we can lose on earth that can rob us of the treasures God has given us and will give us. The opening of the four seals shows the world suffering. That's followed by the fifth seal that reminds us that the church too must suffer. And there is no escape from those sufferings until the end of the world comes with the opening of the sixth seal. But this passage reminds us that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon said in, of this verse back in the 1800s, It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. Listening to a sermon by Pastor Tim Keller this past week, and he pointed out that even if God chooses not to save me from death, if I'm a believer, he will save me through death because I wake up in his arms and there'll be nothing but freedom and liberation and joy, and therefore I am always completely safe. And thirdly and finally in this passage we learn something about salvation. One of my favorite books is J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. And if you've never read it and intend doing so, don't listen to this part because I'm about to spoil the ending of a 1,026-page book. In the book, we read about how the two hobbits, Frodo and Sam, managed to make it all the way to Mount Doom and destroy the enemy Sauron's ring so that he is destroyed and loses all his power. They go through the most horrendous difficulties. They go through dangers at huge personal cost. They almost die. And there's a magnificent scene near the end of the book after they've completed their quest They are rescued from the fiery mountain. They wake up in the land of Gondor and they're brought before their friend Aragon. And he appears as they've never seen him before. He looks noble and regal. They didn't realize, but he's a king and has been recently crowned and is splendidly dressed in royal robes. They're still wearing the rags from their journey. And to their utter amazement, he kneels before them and then leads them to two thrones on his right and left. Later they're given golden crowns and white robes, and the crowds stand and say, praise them with great praise. If you can't relate to the Lord of the Rings, then think Star Wars and the final scene of the movie after the rebels have blown up the Death Star, and Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and Chewbacca walk into that great hall, and everyone stands, and they're presented by medal- with medals by Princess Leia. 
Frodo and Sam and Luke Skywalker and Han Solo are given gifts, white robes, crowns, medals, because of the heroic things that they've done, the tasks they've performed. The great crowd that John describes in verses 9 to 17 consists of those who've come through the tribulation, who've endured all kinds of griefs and sorrows of this world. Many of them have lost their lives. They've been beheaded, tortured, burned alive. And they're wearing white robes, surely as a reward for their great sacrifice. But listen again to what the great crowd say, verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And at that they fall down on their faces before the throne and worship God saying, Amen. The praise and the glory and the wisdom and the thanks and the honor and the power and the strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Our salvation lies with God from beginning to end. And nothing that we can do, have done, or ever could do, even laying down our lives as martyrs, can add one gram to all that God has already done for us in Christ Jesus. Salvation begins and ends with him. He has saved us in all eternity past, before we were born, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was that wonderful day in our lives where we accepted him as Lord and Savior and we moved from darkness to light, from being his enemies to being his beloved sons and daughters. We've been saved in the past. We're being saved right now through God's Holy Spirit working in our lives. Even our troubles and sufferings, Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We have been saved, we are being saved, and this passage reminds me that one day I will finally be saved. That God is able to keep me from falling, he is able to make me stand before his glorious presence, faultless and with great joy. To him alone be the glory. Amen.